Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, November 19th. I am Aranza Loizaga, and these are today's headlines. All eyes on Capitol Hill as day three of public impeachment testimony continues in Washington. Two key players outlining what one calls the unusual July 25th call between President Trump and the leader of Ukraine. The Supreme Court weighing in on the president's taxes, temporarily blocking a ruling forcing Trump's tax firm to turn over his returns to congressional lawmakers. And a man who lost his wife and two sons in a deadly ambush in Mexico, now speaking to Univision about his laws and about who he believes is to blame. This and much more today on U News, recorded live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin with a big day on Capitol Hill as the public impeachment hearings resume. Four witnesses making opening statements and answering questions from both Democrats and Republicans. This as the president of Ukraine addresses the impeachment process. Lorraine Cáceres has all the details. A day packed full of testimonies on Capitol Hill with four more witnesses making public appearances. Jennifer Williams, an employee of the State Department and aide to Vice President Pence, and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinman, our Ukraine expert on the National Security Council, testifying together. It is improper for the President of the United States to demand a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen and a political opponent. During his opening statement, Vinman, who listened in on the July 25th call, explaining why he reported concerns to his superiors. My intent was to raise these concerns because they had significant national security implications for our country. I never thought that I'd be sitting here testifying in front of this committee and the American public about my actions. When I reported my concerns, my only thought was to act properly and to carry out my duty. Republicans pushing him to say if he or anyone he knows leaked information to the press, questioning his knowledge of the Biden's relationship with Ukraine and pushing him to reveal information on the whistleblower. You testified in your deposition that you did not know the whistleblower. Uh, Ranking member, it's uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, please. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, you testified in the deposition that you did not know who the whistleblower was. I do not know who the whistleblower is. Williams, who also listened in on the July 25th call, testifying she did not discuss the call with anyone in or outside the White House, but did find it unusual because it included domestic politics. I thought that the references to specific individuals and investigations, such as former Vice President Biden and his son, struck me as political in nature, given that the former vice president is a political opponent of the president. And so you thought that it could potentially be designed to assist President Trump's re-election effort? I can't speak to what the president's motivation was in, in referencing it, but I just noted that the reference to Biden sounded political to me. Kurt Volker, former U.S. envoy to Ukraine, also testifying, denying he participated in any effort to dig up political dirt on former Vice President Joe Biden. But text messages he provided to Congress revealed that he had talked to Ukrainian officials about launching politically charged investigations. The fourth witness of the day, Tim Morrison, a National Security Council aide, reiterated his allegations that according to EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland, the aid to Ukraine was conditioned on the country announcing an investigation into the Bidens.
Meanwhile, the president of Ukraine is speaking on the impeachment process for the first time since the inquiry began. I think, I'm so, I, I think everybody in Ukraine is so tired about Burisma. We have our, our country, we have our independence, we have our problems and questions. Five more witnesses will testify this week, including Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the EU, tasked by the president with handling Ukraine, who changed his testimony um, behind closed doors to change and say that there was a quid pro quo admitting to that. Aranza, back to you. Thank you very much. We will be on the lookout. And for more on the hearings, joining us now is Charles Zeldin. He is a political science professor at Nova Southeastern University. Professor, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. So what has stood out for you so far today? Well, the circle is tightening. If last week was all about uh, laying out what our policy was towards the Ukraine and what was the consequences of the president uh, coming up with an alternate policy towards the Ukraine, today is all about what happened in the White House and, 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 and laying down the predicate as to what the president and his supporters actually did. So, Professor, what seems to be the Republican strategy this morning? Last week, their defense was that none of the witnesses have first-hand information because they were not on the July 25th call, but both Williams and Vinman were, in fact, on that call. Yeah, today is really attack the messenger. Um, it's, you know, you can't say they don't know what's going on. These individuals, both witnesses, heard the call and made complaints about the call. So instead of saying they don't know what they're talking about, you question uh, their motives, you question their understandings, you question really their patriotism in, in, in coming forward and taking the position that they are. So during the hearings, Binman confirmed that he had drafted talking points for President Trump during that April call with President Zelensky. Binman included points about corruption in Ukraine. But according to a transcript of that call released by the White House last week, the president never raised them. So how does this look for the president? Uh, it doesn't look good. Uh, in essence, the president was caught, if not telling another lie, in not telling the full truth. There was nothing wrong with the fact that he didn't raise the issue of, of, of corruption in that earlier call, but he claimed that he had to try and make a predicate for why in the second call he did the same. Well, it turns out he didn't. Uh, at the worst, it doesn't help the president. At the, wor you know, at the best, uh, it, it makes matters look worse for him. So the Republican defense was when asked, uh, you know, Mr. Benman, that President Trump usually never sticks to prompter. You know, he likes to improvise. Do you think, you know, this is a valid defense for President Trump not touching on those corruption points that were drafted for him for that specific call? It is in one sense in that the president does often speak off the cuff. He has every right to speak off the cuff. He is the president. But the problem was the president was, had, had put forward that he had talked about this information as a way of saying that what he did in the second call was legitimate. The fact that it wasn't there is the damning evidence, not the fact that he went off message or the fact that he didn't follow the, the, uh, the talking points prepared by his staff. 
so in a sense, it, 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 it's irrelevant to the point they're trying to make, but puts the president again in a bad light uh, in terms of what he did, especially in that second call. Professor Zeldin, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be talking soon, probably. Thank you. And as the impeachment hearings resume on Capitol Hill, House Democrats are set to choose who will lead the powerful Oversight and Reform Committee, a key role in the ongoing impeachment inquiry of President Donald Trump. The House Democratic Steering Committee will make a recommendation today with the full caucus set to vote tomorrow. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court was temporarily blocked the release of President Donald Trump's financial records. His financial documents were set to be released Wednesday after a lower court opinion allowed a House subpoena to go forward. Trump then requesting to disregard that subpoena. The House said Monday that it would agree to a temporary stay to give justices more time to consider legal arguments. The Supreme Court has asked the House to respond to Trump's request by Thursday. A historic policy shift regarding Israel. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced the reversal of a long-standing U.S. policy that Israeli settlements in the West Bank are inconsistent with international law. That position has been in place since 1978. Pompeo says the Trump administration agrees with President Ronald Reagan's 1981 interception that those settlements are not inherently illegal. Take a listen. After carefully studying all sides of the legal debate, this administration agrees with President Reagan. The establishment of Israeli civilian settlements in the West Bank is not, per se, inconsistent with international law. Pompeo went on to say the U.S. government is, quote, expressing no view on the legal status of settlements. This policy change breaks with international law and consensus and could cause increased tensions between the Trump administration and Palestine. And two professors at the American University in Kabul are free after a prisoner swap. The Taliban had been holding American Kevin King and Australian Timothy Weeks hostage since 2016. Their release was secured today when three commanders of an Afghan insurgent group were also released. The Taliban called the exchange a step towards goodwill in the peace process. Two federal workers who were on duty the night Jeffrey Epstein killed himself in a Manhattan jail were arrested on federal charges related to their alleged failure to check on him. The two jail workers are expected to face federal charges relating to the night Epstein allegedly killed himself in August. A U.S. Customs and Border Patrol officer getting the shock of a lifetime. That agent trying to begin immigration paperwork for his brother, but it turns out the officer himself is the one who needed to get his paperwork in order. Dagny Noriega has the story. In April 2018, Raul Rodriguez got the surprise of his life when he started an immigration procedure to bring his brother to the United States from Matamoros, Mexico. That's when they showed me the Mexican birth certificate and asked me if I knew that document. And I told them the truth, that it was the first time that I ever saw that document. And it was mine because it had the names of my parents and my grandparents. This war veteran and former immigration officer was so baffled that he sent for his father with a relative to Mexico to clarify what appeared to be a confusion. But it wasn't. His father revealed a family secret, 
Rodriguez was born in Mexico. The reason for the lie remains a mystery, but the truth is that the life of this family has become a living hell. He was fired from his job of almost 20 years and could even be deported. His family also suffers the consequences. My second son, he lost his citizenship because I gave it to him when he was born. He was born in Mexico, but I made him a citizen thinking I was an American citizen. But he had to return that citizenship back. The Inspector General's office has said that data collected failed to substantiate the allegations that Rodriguez knowingly submitted a fraudulent birth certificate in an attempt to adjust his brother's immigration status. But he has still been denied residency in this country because the Immigration and Nationality Act says that in general, any alien who misrepresents himself as a citizen of the United States for the purpose of profiting makes him inadmissible. But his attorney is appealing the decision. In his case, it was a different circumstances because he was told all his life that he was born in the United States. He had a birth certificate. When he joined the Army of the United States, where he served with honor, no one asked him anything. Raul has four children, and his wife, a U.S. citizen, also works with CBP. A group of delivery men in New York City say they're having a tough time recovering large amounts of money in stolen wages, despite winning a lawsuit against their employee. Peggy Carranza has the details. Wage theft is a multi-million dollar crime that apparently goes unpunished often. Efren Caballero and nine other co-workers claim the owner of the restaurant where they worked in New York City still owes them hundreds of thousands of dollars after winning a lawsuit for minimum wage theft four years ago. When we filed a lawsuit against the owner, we won, but he only paid us $110,000 out of 700000 said Efren. The restaurant owner, who allegedly sold the place, hasn't answered a request for comment. Meanwhile, some workers say it is a tactic. What they doing to avoid the responsibility, they uh, declare bankruptcy, shut down the restaurant, change the name, reopen with another name. According to the Economic Policy Institute, more than 2 million workers lose $8 billion annually due to minimum wage violations in the 10 most populous states of the U.S. In New York, this scenario could change if Governor Andrew Cuomo signs a bill before January 1st. With this new law, the employees and their lawyers are going to have the opportunity to freeze the assets and the bank accounts so that there's money available for them to collect from once they have won the lawsuits. A spokesman for Governor Cuomo told us that they are still reviewing hundreds of bills passed by the state legislature. In New York City, Peggy Carranza, U News. A taxi driver in New York City is claiming his innocence after police accused him of attacking a passenger. But as Fabiola Galindo explains, video which captured that incident now in the hands of the police only tells part of the story. Three days after learning that police were looking for him, taxi driver Sandy De Jesus turned himself to the authorities. He says he's innocent of the crime he's been accused of committing and that he's actually a victim. I never hit or touched anyone, not with my hands or anything else. He started working as a taxi driver one year ago for a company that only takes cash payments. That was until police published this video from October. You can see the Jesus inside a building's lobby 
where he had dropped a passenger. He says the passenger did not pay him for the service and also robbed him. Then he confronts the passenger's boyfriend who allegedly attacks the driver. Él no pensó que había pasado nada. After that, he got in his car and left, says this representative for the Taxes Federation. And a month later, the police came to his workplace looking for him. He found out on Thursday. The Jesus says that he acted in self-defense because the passenger stole $190 cash from his day's work. He argues that the knife he's holding in the video is for his personal use, to eat. He denies having stabbed the alleged victims who initially did not cooperate with the police in the investigation. We believe that the police should arrest those who stole from Sandy and not arrest him. Taxi drivers who only get paid cash say they are at a bigger risk of getting robbed. Of every 10 trips, two or three people don't pay and we can't demand payment. But when a driver does something, the police has your identification and come after you. There are laws that prohibit a driver from going after the passenger. You're not supposed to follow them, even if they don't pay. It's against the rules. You're supposed to call the cops instead. After talking to police, De Jesus was transferred to a court where he now faces charges for assault and possession of a weapon. He's hoping those charges get dismissed after an investigation of the alleged victims. In New York, Fabiola Galindo, U News. Police in the Dominican Republic have arrested six people in connection with the death of American teacher Patricia and Anton, who was found strangled in her apartment last week. The 63-year-old teacher was robbed and killed in Puerto Plata on the country's no northern coast. Police are searching for another person they are calling a fugitive. Anton was a teacher and consultant at a Montessori school where she worked for six years. In Nicaragua, relatives of activists who have been imprisoned for days are demanding their release. The activists were imprisoned last Thursday for bringing water to the mothers of other imprisoned activists who were in the midst of a hunger strike on Monday. The Office of the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights tweeted that Nicaraguan authorities had to release the activists, quote, immediately. In Venezuela, Nicolás Maduro took to the streets Monday as part of a new wave of counter-protests. This after interim President Juan Guaidó, in a large demonstration two days earlier, urged sustained protests, pointing to Bolivia, where days of upheaval prompted the resignation of Maduro's ally, Evo Morales. In Mexico, a crash involving three buses killed at least 13 people and injured 20 on the Mexico-Pachuca Highway between Mexico City and Ecatepec late Monday night. The accident happened when the driver of a bus traveling north attempted to pass other vehicles by driving on the shoulder. The bus then slammed into the back of another bus that had stopped for passengers. It's been two weeks since the massacre of a family of dual U.S. and Mexican citizens living in northern Mexico. That attack claiming nine lives, six children and three mothers from a Mormon family. David Langford lost his wife and two of his children, and he spoke exclusively to Pedro Rojas about the state of his five surviving children and about why he wants to go to the White House to talk to the president. Uh, really busy right now. David Lamford, the father of the five children that survived the massacre, where three mothers and six children from the United States were killed in Sonora, Mexico on Monday, November 4th, spoke exclusively with Univision. 
We asked him how his family is doing these days, and this was his response. It's going to be a long haul, emotionally and physically, for all my kids, uh, for my whole family. It, this is something that, that, that don't happen to families very often, and it's devastating. These are some videos of the children while they were being treated for their injuries at the hospital. Last Saturday, Cody was the last one to be released. He suffered four gunshot wounds that require several surgeries. David Lanford says that the medical expenses are pretty high, and the family created a GoFundMe page. They didn't have medical insurance because everyone was living in Mexico. He revealed that he has met with the FBI and federal agents provided him with security when he attended the funeral services for his wife and two children dead during the incident. Epic he wants the U.S. government to declare Mexican cartels as terrorist organizations and is even willing to go to the White House. I sure would. I would love, it. I would love uh, uh, to have a meeting with President Trump. It would be my, my dream, actually, to meet him. And to sit down and explain sit what Sit down and explain what happened and, and maybe get some ideas of what he's thinking and, and if there, it is a possibility to do something about this, uh, it would be, yeah, it would be great. On the other hand, he made a strong critics of the hawks and no bullets policy promoted by Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador and denounced Mexican citizens not being allowed to defend themselves. Bad people don't, uh, don't change because you go and hug them. You know what I mean? How, how far would his security get or even any, you know, uh, any, uh, 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 any officials in Mexico, how, uh, how secure would they feel if, if everybody around them, all their uh, agents, were armed with hugs? It's so ridiculous, I can't even believe it's even, it's even uh, said. Even though David Lanford's kids have now been released from a hospital here in Tucson, Arizona, they now start the long journey of physical and emotional therapies. The father says that he will be remaining in this city, living at a friend's house. David Lamford is only 14 years old, survived the attack and saved the lives of his siblings by hiding them in the brush. He says that the attackers were dressed in green and gray colors with masks on their faces. Before the attack, the gunmen spoke with the family briefly. They said, está bien, está bien, really softly. I don't think they were trying to be rude or nothing. Mm -hmm. They got us out, uh, out of the car. And it just went all right there. He also told us that when he went walking to look for help, the attackers shot at him again. And that's when the uh, guy started shooting at me and so why did you down the watch? So they follow you? I don't know if they followed me or if a guy just spotted me. Devin and his father are really impacted by the tragedy that has hit their family and told us that the victims were headed to a wedding when the incident happened. For now, the land force are not planning to return to live in Mexico. In Tucson, Arizona, Pedro Rojas, UNews. More of your news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the story from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. 
Just blocks away from the White House, a new restaurant is hoping to bridge the political divide and find common ground while serving delicious meals. It's called immigrant food. The idea behind the restaurant is to fight the anti-immigrant sentiment by uniting at the table. Here's Janet Rodriguez. Just a few steps from the White House, a chef is trying to unite people through food. Se hizo una investigación durante seis meses de cuáles fueron todas las There was a six months investigation about all the immigrant groups that make up the United States, and based on that, I got to work. The Venezuelan chef who moved to the U.S. just five years ago was able to create a menu combining Asian, African, and Latin flavors. It is a fusion of flavors sending a unifying message to a certain neighbor determined on dividing the country. What we want to do is celebrate that immigrants make America beautiful, they make it interesting, they bring culture and make it richer in all kinds of ways. Immigrant food has been cooking for over a year. The owners have partnered up with five non-profit organizations to raise awareness about immigration issues. When you come eat here, you're going to find a way to help, to better understand what's happening and to have better arguments to talk about what's going on. We're a few blocks from the White House with a strong anti-immigrant rhetoric. Do you think it's ironic if this is here? Yes, yes, of course. Here at this restaurant, politics would always be a topic of conversation given its proximity to the White House, but with a twist that seeks to make immigrants a priority. What we want is for them to feel important, because they actually are very, very important. The restaurant opened its doors just a few weeks ago, and the owners are already thinking about expanding, because during a year in which immigration has remained in the headlines, what better way to keep it alive than through food? Janet Rodriguez, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then, 